I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 20. John chapter 12, verse 20. Let's begin reading now. John chapter 12, verse 20. We're going to read through verse 36, and then we'll step away from the passage for a little bit before returning to it at the end of our service. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Then, people, then the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Um, last week I, I tried to make the point that in the person of Jesus, something amazing, something unique in all of human history happened. And I know that I might have gone on too long with it, but... I borrowed the language of Jordan Peterson, who in a tearful admission of partial belief publicly stated a few weeks ago that in Christ Jesus, what he calls the narrative world touches or touched the objective world. That is to say, the narrative world. The story we tell ourselves about life and about the universe, about right and wrong, good and evil, the story about who we are and who we might become, our purpose. The narrative world is something that is, for the most part, not observable in any material way. We often call these stories about life, about God, spiritual things, because they require a belief in something meaningful beyond what we can see and touch and feel. The grass is green, that's observable. In the material world, it can be seen can be touched, you can go into your yard and, and pick it out. Grass belongs to the objective world. It doesn't require belief, it's just there. And yet, in and of itself, grass is virtually useless to me when it comes to understanding who I am as a person and what my life is supposed to be about. The grass is useless for that. And I would make the case that to my thinking, all if not most at least things in the objective material world are useless when it comes to providing any significance to my life at all. You and I, we exist in this objective world. We can see each other, we can embrace each other, 
our children, our parents, our homes, all of these exist in the objective world, and yet these objects in and of themselves, speaking now even of human beings, do not have the capacity to inform our soul, to speak to who we are. We do not derive a sense of purpose or meaning from them alone. They require a story. Now, you may think, for instance, that your purpose is derived from your children who exist in the material world. But there are many parents who have children and treat those children terribly if they care for them at all. So we find that even when it comes to our children, even our children don't inform us when it comes to figuring out who we are and how to live, but rather what we believe about our connection to our children and our responsibilities to our children. That is to say, the story that we believe about the significance of family, of being a mother, of being a father, that story that we believe about family, that is what gives purpose, meaningfulness to parenthood. It's the story behind those little beings that are born to us. That's where the power lies. And apart from a believable narrative, we would be no better parents than anyone else. The objects in the world do not provide meaning. We must bring meaning to them. Their meaning is understood in the context of the story that we tell ourselves about them. And because of this, stories are very powerful things. Everyone believes a story about the world, about themselves, about life. It, it, it may not be a complete story. It may not be a logical story. It may not make a lot of sense. I've, shared, I've tried to share the gospel with lots of spiritually thinking people who when push comes to shove and they try to tell me what it is they believe, they can't even make sense of what they believe. But they believe it. They have to have a story. They have to have some framework for thinking about who they are, right and wrong, judgment, purpose, meaning. Life is meaningless without a story, a purpose. Taking it to the other extreme, the Nazis, they believed in a story. Now, they were atheistic in every sense of the word, but they believed in a story. They believed in the evolution of the Aryan race the supremacy of the Aryan race's future. That was their story. It was their race theory. It informed their ethics, the way they behaved, what they thought was right and wrong. It gave purpose and meaning to their lives. And that story had a dramatic consequence on the objective world where they lived. I use them for an example. Even atheists have a story that they believe. Everyone does. Stories are powerful things. The story that you believe about the life that you live will have and is having right now today a profound impact on who you are as a person and the world around you. Now when a man like Jordan Peterson says that in the person of Jesus, the narrative world, narrative meaning story, the narrative world touches the objective world. He is saying something profound, but he is merely echoing the profound thing that the Bible has already said. And we looked at this last week. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word, verse 14 of John's first chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word the story of creation and God and good and evil and human life and human hope and human purpose, the word became flesh. It entered into objectivity. It could be seen, it could be touched. John talks about it in his letter in 1 John, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
That life was manifested to us. We have seen it. We bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. Was the first several verses of 1 John 1. Everything that we instinctively know to be true about life, everything good and noble that comes from the great story of God that we cling to, stepped into our physical reality in the person of Jesus. The narrative touched the objective. The word became flesh. And we beheld his glory. And this was all last week. And the logical question for any observer of Jesus, in fact, the question that those men and what Paul read this morning who wanted to make Jesus king, the question they themselves were trying to answer is if the word had become flesh in this person of Jesus, if he were here, what was he going to do? It's one thing to observe that something incredible had happened. Jesus incarnate in flesh and blood. But why? For what purpose? What would he do? Jesus' mission had to be something objective. It had to be something that required flesh and blood, or else why would Jesus become flesh and blood to begin with? He didn't need to become flesh and blood for God to tell us about creation. He didn't need to become flesh and blood to give us rules about understanding morality, righteousness, and sin. We have that from the Old Testament. Why did God send His Son in the flesh? What was He doing? And every Christian person knows the answer. God sent His Son to save us. The Word became flesh so that God might perform an act of salvation. But this is an incredible thing to think about. That God would go to this extreme, Himself being born as a baby into a world far on every plane of existence below Him. He would be born as a man, flesh and blood, to be handled by men, to be judged by men, to be questioned by men. It's incredible to think that God would do that to save sinners, to save guilty people. But that's what the angel says to Joseph about Jesus' coming. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 21, she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Not he will feed the 5,000 or he will walk on water. He'll cause the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He'll cast out demons. He'll raise people from the dead. Not any of that. You will call his name Jesus because... Here is the mission. He will save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus said about himself. Matthew 18, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come to save the lost. At one point in Luke's Gospel, the disciples get very frustrated because people are in rejection of Jesus. And they actually ask Jesus, Lord, will you call down fire and judge them? He says, I'm not going to do that. I did not come to bring destruction upon these people. I came to save those who were lost. God didn't need to come in the flesh to bring destruction upon people. Paul writes to Christians, this thing so that they might understand God's purposes. In 1 Timothy, he writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, This is the Apostle Paul, he adds, Of whom I am chief. And this is an amazing thing to think about. That God would enter into this objective world so that he might perform an act of salvation, an act of salvation that could not be performed in any other way. In the Bible, we get precious 
a precious glimpse of God in and among his creation before sin corrupted it, before sin came into the world. I call it a glimpse because it it is very short. But in Genesis chapter two, we get a picture of God interacting with creation before sin. And there he is a God of peace and fellowship, a God of life with Adam. He is walking and speaking with his creation. He provides something far beyond our understanding. He provides Adam in the garden with the tree of life that Adam might live in fellowship with him forever. That is beyond our consideration. Everything that we have ever known of this world involves death. Everything about the world that we live in is finite. Like a clock winding down. And we can shut our eyes to it and pretend that the clock isn't ticking, but it is. As you get older, it's harder and harder to deny the reality of it. But that's not the God of Genesis 2. That's not the Adam of Genesis 2. This in Genesis 2, in a world uncorrupted by sin, is a God of prosperity and peace and life and blessing, loving his creation and fellowshipping with Adam and Eve. But when sin enters the world, then comes death and pain. Separation. Adam and Eve are not holy and they cannot stay in the presence of a holy God. And they find that what it means to be separated from a holy God means to be separated from the life that flows from that holy God. To be separated from the prosperity of the garden. To be separated from the peace and fellowship with God in the garden. To be separated, yes, from the tree of life. We find Adam committed to working the ground for his own food. And we're told, as his judgment, the ground would not yield easily to him, but would produce thorns and thistles, which, okay. But we quickly come to realize those thorns and thistles represent something much deeper. Struggle, pain. Pain realized in the murder of Adam's son, Abel, in the next chapter. A murder committed by his other son, Cain, who himself is exiled under judgment. And the reader in Genesis begins to wonder at the story, at the shock of such kind of familial horror. And the question comes, what kind of God will our God be in the face of this kind of catastrophe? A world so overcome by sin that in one generation you have a brother murdering a brother. We've seen the God of Genesis 2. What sort of God will this be? How will God act in an evil world? What will God do in a world condemned to judgment? The answer comes quickly in the story and then it comes over and over again in the Old Testament. And here it is. In a fallen world devoted to destruction where every man, woman, and child face the impending doom of their death as a consequence of sin, Yahweh will be a God who saves. This is the Old Testament over and over again. Yahweh, our God, will be a God who rescues and saves. Yesterday, I looked up more than 30 passages in the Old Testament, which is by no means a comprehensive list. 30 times in the Old Testament where God demonstrated over and over again that in a fallen, evil world, He would save. He would be salvation. God is saving Noah and his family in Genesis shortly after this, the only God-fearing people left on the planet. God is saving Abraham by faith. That becomes the great theological grounds by which Paul argues to us salvation by faith alone in the New Testament. God is saving Isaac, who would be offered on the altar of Abraham by faith, rescuing at the last moment because of Abraham's faith. God is saving Lot from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the lone righteous man there. 
God is saving Jacob from Esau's hand when he returns from robbing and deceiving and sinning against his family. God is saving Israel by Joseph's hand as Joseph tells his brother this in Genesis 45. Genesis 45, 7, God sent me to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God is saving Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus. God is saving Israel from all their enemies. As Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 4. The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. To save you. In the promised land. Afflicted by all of their enemies. A terrified Gideon if you know the story. A terrified Gideon afflicted by all the enemies of God's people, says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I'll put this fleece of wool on the floor, and if there's dew on the fleece only in the morning, and the rest of the ground is dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand. And God performs Gideon's little parlor trick to convince the terrified man who's afraid to go to war because Gideon knows he is incapable of saving anyone. But God doesn't let Gideon get off so easily. He then terrifies him all the more by sending most of Gideon's army away. In Judges chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says, By the 300 men who lapped water from this stream, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And God saves Israel. When the people feared the Philistines and had no king, God tells them of young Saul, 1 Samuel 9, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. And God saves. And when Saul turns his back on God, it's the newly anointed future King David who reminds Israel of God's salvation when he stands on a battlefield across from Goliath and cries out to this terror of a man in the sight of all Israel. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that Yahweh does not save with sword and spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. And Israel was saved. Saved at the hand of a shepherd by the power of God. When the armies of Assyria surround Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and it finally looks for all the world like Jerusalem will suffer the judgment that they rightfully deserve for turning their back on God over and over again. God sends the prophet Isaiah to say to the king in 2 Kings 19, Don't worry. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And history records that the Assyrians were afflicted by plague in the evening and turned around and left. Not the Bible. History records. Why? Because Yahweh saves. In Job's torment, 
It is God who reminds him in chapter 40 that only he can save. In the Psalms, the voice of David cries out over and over again, both asking for salvation and then praising God for salvation that's been provided. In the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, even Jonah. The salvation of Nineveh. God is demonstrating a look towards an everlasting salvation. All the prophets look towards an everlasting salvation, not merely a momentary one, but one that would be eternal. Here is Isaiah in Isaiah 25. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Isaiah 32, 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Jeremiah 17. The weeping prophet who I can relate to. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. In Ezekiel. Therefore, I will save my flock, and there shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord, your God, in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Folks, if you have nothing else in the world to be happy about today, if you have no one to celebrate Resurrection Easter Sunday with, if the temperature rising and the birds singing do nothing to lift your mood, if everything around you is empty and lonely and falling apart, you can rejoice in this one prevailing truth. God is a God who saves. He is not merely a God who judges. He is not merely a God who destroys the wicked. He is not merely a God who is perfectly righteous. Though you can be sure he is all of those things, praise God for this truth. He is a God who saves. And he defines himself among a lost and dying world as a God who truly brings salvation. Enter Jesus. At his birth, the angels declare, he will save my people from their sins. At his baptism, God declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, God speaks, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So let's listen. Lord, what would you say? John chapter 12, verse 20. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and they asked him saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now to this point in Jesus' ministry, he had been faithfully performing the acts of the Jewish Messiah preaching to the Jews and calling all of Israel to repentance. And now at the very end of his earthly ministry with the crucifixion on the horizon, it says Greeks have come to see him, meaning not Jewish people. Now they had come for the feast because the Passover feast in Jerusalem was a global event. 
It was one of three times that all Jews, no matter where they lived, were commanded to go to Jerusalem and offer their sacrifices there. And estimates in the millions exist about how many people flooded Jerusalem and all the surrounding villages at this point in time. You couldn't find a place to stay inside the city. They would stay in all the surrounding areas and go up for the Passover. And Gentile people who were not Jews, who could not go into the second court, who could not go in further beyond a wall in the temple, Gentiles would come too. Many God-fearing, which means they were not converted Jews, but they knew the God of Israel was different from the gods of their pagan cultures. They saw in the God of Israel something to be admired and esteemed and feared, and they would come to this feast too. And there was a court, the outer court in the temple called the court of the Gentiles and they were allowed in there. And it's while they're there at the Passover in Jerusalem that they hear that Jesus is there. Perhaps they had heard of him, perhaps they had not and they want to come to Jesus. And telling this to Philip, Philip and Andrew discuss, should we bring in this crowd of people where Jesus is teaching, should we bring a group of Gentiles to Jesus? Will Jesus want to speak with them? Will he receive them? And Jesus, seeing the Gentiles coming, points to their interest in him and says, the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because folks, that's what the cross, that's what the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus does. That's what he's going to unfold in these verses. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is where he goes from being a distinctly and exclusively Jewish Messiah to the Lamb of God slain for the sins of all the world. The Gentiles are coming. God's salvation is here. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He uses an agricultural metaphor. You take that seed and you put it in the ground and what happens? The seed cracks open. The protein shell of a seed dissolves. It goes away, purpose complete. And out of it grows a life beneath the surface that you can't see. And when it grows, it flowers and produces. It bears more seed and more fruit. And by this, Jesus is telling the crowd in plain language, he is going to die. This is why the narrative had to touch the objective world. Because to make a sacrifice for the sins of the world real flesh and blood was required. Jesus would be that. The word became flesh so that he could die. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. What does he say here? Not everyone will be saved by faith. Not everyone will see the life that they live as something to be saved from. A great many people will love their life, as meager as it is, to the point that they won't see anything worthwhile in Jesus. They won't see anything that necessitates salvation. But to the person who looks at their life and the suffering in it and the suffering on the horizon and the finiteness of the years of life that we have and sees this as something not to be clung to and seeks salvation from judgment of sin in the person of Jesus Christ, that person will save their life for all eternity. Listen again. He who loves his life will lose it. You want to cling to the life that you have now? And all of its sin, selfishness, self-desire, your own plans, your own ambitions? Okay. You'll also get your own clock. 
And when the years of your life strike midnight, it'll be over. And then you'll stand before the Lord and give an account for the way that you lived. And the verdict will be guilty. And you will experience separation from God eternally in a place of torment called Hades, called hell, called a lake of fire. A place where the basic grace of God extended to you on this earth do not touch. But he who sees this life as something not to be clung to. If you look at your life as the clock ticking down until cancer or a car accident or something else takes you. And you hate that. If you look at all of your selfish pursuits and ambitions your self-serving way of living, a life only about you and your inner circle of cares and concerns, be it people or circumstances. If you look at that and you see something to be despised, what am I doing? Why am I living this way? There's no purpose in this. There's no eternal value in this. There's no meaning in this. If you look at that life and you hate it, then you might see Jesus and recognize salvation for what it is. And the person who does, who does that will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. A bold thing to say from a man who's on his way to the cross. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. My soul is troubled. But what am I supposed to ask God to spare me from this? This is why the word became flesh. Some people will look at that phrase where Jesus says my soul is troubled and they'll, they'll make it exclusively about the spiritual anguish of separation between father and son at the cross that experiences, that Jesus experiences there. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. And if you are going to a crucifixion tomorrow, if you are going to an arrest, a betrayal, and a flogging, your soul would be troubled too. Here's what D.A. Carson writes about this. Listen. Even in John, Jesus cannot contemplate the cross as some descetic actor, some robot with no feeling, steeped in dispassionate unconcern. His heart is deeply troubled. The verb here is a strong one, and it signifies revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. I skip down and read this quote. Surely it cannot be surprising that the prospect of the cross proved utterly daunting to Jesus on more than one occasion. This passage is tied to themes of glorification, of the hour, and provides incentive to follow the one whose death we must in some measure emulate, assured that he did not find the path easy himself. When Jesus calls on you to take up your cross daily and follow him, he's not pretending that that was no big deal for him. He's not pretending that it's an easy task. He did not find it easy himself. Verse 28, he won't ask God to spare him from this. Verse 28, instead, he prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the Father's final affirmation. I have glorified my name in the life that you have lived. I will glorify it in your death and resurrection. The people who heard it said that it had thundered. Other people said, no, an angel has spoken to him because he's clearly crying out to God and there is an immediate, unusual, audible response that the people cannot understand. But Jesus answers in verse 30, the voice didn't come for me, but for your sake. And later on, his disciples would understand. Not now, 
The life of Jesus has brought glory to God and the crucifixion will. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said signifying by what death he would die. How does judgment come to the world at the cross? It's very simple. The cross of Jesus Christ divides everyone in this room into two categories. Every single person. There are people in this room who look to the cross of Jesus Christ and they see at the cross of Jesus God's salvation for them. And then there are people in this room who look at the cross of Jesus Christ and for whatever it is to them, a story true, a story false, whatever it is, they see the salvation offered them there as something to be rejected, neglected, put off. All human beings fall into this category because Jesus truly has drawn all people to himself. Look at where you're sitting right now. Is this Jerusalem? Are you a Jew? The gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out to the ends of the earth. How many tens of thousands of miles are we away from all this? How many thousands of miles are we from this? And the message of Jesus Christ at the cross has split everyone. You will either accept the salvation of God presented at the back of Jesus Christ on Calvary, or you will reject it and number yourself with those who crucified him. So he says, now is the judgment of this world. Not today is the day when everyone goes to heaven or hell, but this is the act that will decide it. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is Philippians 2. Satan's defeat is at the cross. Oh, Satan is still running around, antagonizing God and his people. But his days are numbered because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2. And he, being found in the form of a man, humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everyone on heaven and on earth will bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow on heaven and on the earth. Satan's dominion is done. Why? Because he humbled himself and being found in the form of a man, became obedient even unto death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Because Jesus will obey to the very end. Verse 34. The people answered him. Now this is where it all comes to a a head. What's the response? The people answered him. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Now what they're saying is we know from the law that the Messiah is not just some flash in a pan character, but he endures forever. How can you say he must be lifted up? Because they knew what that meant. They knew what crucifixion was. How can you say he must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? In other words, you call yourself the son of man. Are you not the Messiah? Is the son of man not the Messiah? What kind of son of man are you? We thought you were proclaiming yourself the Messiah, but the law says the Messiah is eternal. And you say... You're going to be lifted up? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. While you walk, sorry, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And this is, this is where it all comes to a head. It is a horrifying thing to imagine that you could live this life in darkness with no clue where you are going. 
That is a terrifying thing. Jesus comes to us in John's gospel as the light. Salvation. We're told the light is the life of men. Walk in the light because those who walk in darkness have no idea where they're going. Now that's true as a basic statement. It stands on its own. But metaphorically, let me just ask you this morning. Do you have any sense of security about where you are going when you die? The Bible, in, in its simple way, states something very profound that every one of us knows to be true. It says this, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Maybe you prefer to think that life is meaningless. Maybe it helps you sleep at night to think that your life doesn't matter. There is no God who cares. You can do whatever you want morally. Try to make yourself happy. When you die, nothing will happen. Maybe that's a story that helps like a drug dull the senses of the reality that is going to happen to you when you die. But let me tell you something. To believe that story, you have to believe that there is no good or evil or meaning or purpose in the world at all. Let me ask you a question. Are you prepared to forfeit everything that you know is right and true and embrace everything that is evil as an acceptable course of living just so that you don't have to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to throw away any concept of meaning or purpose in your life? Are you prepared to discard any hope of a real relationship with God who loves you just so that you don't have to change and think about judgment? You're believing the wrong story. The story that you are telling yourself is a lie. You are deceiving yourself. Here's the truth. Your life does matter. What you do, right and wrong, do matter. Who you are is being observed and watched. There is a God who loves you who has gone to great lengths to save you out of all the pain that you've experienced and all the pain that's yet to come. He has secured for you eternal life in a kingdom without sin. And he has stepped in, the author has stepped into his own story to die the death required to redeem you from your own guilt. And all he requires of you is that you believe that story and trust him with your life. When you believe a lie, you are signing your own death certificate. The true story is much more precious and much more powerful. And you know what? Every human being knows to a certain extent deep down that it's true. I have never truly met a person that was fully able to swallow the pill that their life didn't matter. God loves you and has given his life to save you because that's who God is. Your response to that salvation will determine who you are. You are either a child of God or you are a crucifier of God, one or the other. Now let's pray together. Father, I pray for every single person here this morning that they will see the beauty 
and the majesty of this true story as something to be strived after, something to be reached after, something to embrace, something fulfilling, something powerful. That whoever is here this morning and has not trusted you and believed you and committed themselves to you, that they will for a brief moment today despise the life that they live now and see life with you as something far greater, far more precious. Father, let them now feel the weight of their sin, the reality of their guilt, the consequence of their selfishness, the futility of their own ambitions. And Father, in the midst of those depraving thoughts, draw them out of it into life and relationship with you. Draw them to the cross where you hung and bled and died in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem them. Help them to cry out as David for salvation. Help them to return next week and praise you as David did for salvation accomplished. Don't let them sit there in their stubborn hard-heartedness and live in rejection of who you are and what you have done. Move them spiritually with a miracle inside their hearts that no man can perform. Only you can bring people out of darkness and into light. Father, as we look towards next week, return all of your people to celebrate your victory over death and the eternal life that it's accomplished for us. We thank you for baptism for those who have come forward to be saved. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.